Hello, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of Driving with Annoying Question Boy. Um, This is not a bonus episode, although it might end up being around the same length. Um, But today I wanted to talk about, one, I wanted to talk about a little bit more my book that I'm writing because I'm very proud of it and I uh, feel the need to brag about it to someone. And also, I mean, I need people to buy it. So, I mean, I should probably advertise a little bit. Uh, But then I also want to talk about this subject that seems to be coming up quite often in my personal life with, uh, you know, friends of mine that I have political conversations with who are more on the uh, right-hand side of things. Not necessarily like, um, you know, conservative or anything necessarily. Uh, But... I have, you know, some friends who are libertarian, I have some friends who are liberal, I have some friends who are conservative, and I have some friends who are Republican. And in all my spheres of friendship, uh, other than uh, usually uh, my leftist spheres, um, this conversation has come up recently. So I want to talk about how, you know, how deep-seated this hatred for government in this country is. And how, one, um, that hatred is, you know, as well-placed as it is on the current government, uh, that hatred is of this current government specifically. And really, more broadly, it is a hatred of government under capitalism. You know, we do not have an example in the world that Americans are taught or really can understand We do not have an example of what a socialist government in this country looks like. So our entire conception of government, most, you know, Americans, uh, seems to be simply the government of America. And then they just mirror that government across the world. And sure, there's many governments that are equally as awful as the American government. But we should understand that there really isn't any government that is run and structured so poorly as the American government. And on top of that, that is a direct cause of the economic system with which that government system was formed under. It's not simply government that you hate. It's government under capitalism that you hate. And I want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about just briefly this uh, this point of, um, you know, trying to have discussions of like what a socialist uh, revolution, what a socialist um, movement would look like, uh, and how it would change society, and how it's it's really, I don't want to say an annoying question, but it's really quite an insane question to ask when you put it, you know, really in the perspective that it deserves. Um, but before, you know, without further ado, let's go ahead and hit the uh, the intro music. Uh, I wonder what it's going to be this time. Wow, what a good one. I'll tell you what. They just keep getting better and better. Um, But yeah, so... uh, If you're still listening, because, I mean, I'm sure that there's at least a few people who heard what we're going to talk about and were like, yep, no, I'm good. Um, So yeah, if you're still listening, like I said... Uh, I kind of want to just briefly hit on my book that I, I, I'm writing. So I did an episode on it, the last episode I did, titled Liberation 
uh, is irresistible or whatever I titled it. Uh, the name of my book will be probably Liberation is Irresistible. And to give some background, um, I was inspired by both Vijay Prashad, who is an incredible intellect. Uh, He has a lot of lectures on YouTube, which are very good. He has written an extensive amount of books, which uh, I've read three so far. And of the three that I've read, uh, they've been fantastic. Uh, He really... Him, so the book is inspired by him and also Nick Estes, who is also an incredible author and an incredible activist. Um, uh, Nick Estes is from, uh, oh shit, I'm trying to think of the place. Uh, I believe he is uh, Lakota. Um, And so I'm pretty sure that where he is from is in what we would call South Dakota, but uh, don't quote me there. I feel bad for getting that wrong, possibly, but, um, he, um, he, uh, wrote a book called Our History is the Future, what I, which I have recently read, which is also, uh, very much, uh, about, and it, not very much about, it is about the, uh, nature of indigenous resistance, not only just in the United States, but also across the world, and so, that combined with uh, what I've been reading from Vijay Prashad, uh, such as Washington Bullets, and then also some of the lectures I've heard where he's talked about the importance of resistance. Uh, in one of his lectures that I watched, I believe it was a lecture, or it might have been a podcast that he was on, um, he cited a, or he talked about really, a UN resolution uh, from 1961 where the statement, liberation is irresistible and irreversible, is, is said. Um, and he t- kind of talks about how, you know, exhilarating that statement is and how inspiring that statement is. And through that conversation and then also just kind of the things that I've been reading recently and learning, uh, both of his, Nick Estes's, and then also just in general, uh, I, I really felt inspired uh to write, but not only that, I felt that through what I have learned, what I have learned recently, I've finally been able to kind of acquire the language, which I've so desperately needed to write uh, somewhat eloquently. I'm certainly not as good of a writer as either Nick or uh, VJ, but I mean, I try my best. I feel that a lot of my writing is a bit repetitive and a little bit, uh, you know run-on sentency, but again, as I've said before, I am not really a quote-unquote scholar, um, which I am actively working on. I am trying to read as much as I can. I had to quarantine these last two weeks, and I read in total 11 books. Uh, I reread The Communist Manifesto, which I felt really good about because, you know, going back and reading that with a much better understanding of what is being said, uh, it, it, w- it was nice to kind of, because I've read it before and just had it go completely over my head. Some of these things to me can be far too abstract, and that's why I really like podcasts and also why I very much have enjoyed uh, VJ. But, uh, so, yeah, so I wrote a book, and it's titled Liberation is Irresistible, uh, or I think that's what it's going to be titled, 
And uh, I talk about, firstly, um, you know, what VJ has talked about uh, regarding the UN resolution, and I kind of point out some of the same things that he says uh, in his conversation that I heard. And then I transition that into trying to talk about, you know, why it is that liberation movements in 2019, as recently as 2019, Bolivia had a quote-unquote liberation movement because, you know, it suffered a coup which it had to overcome. And that, to me, that's a liberation movement for the people. And so, as recently as 2019, the United States government has meddled in the affairs of other countries. And the fact of the matter is that this should have never been allowed, let alone, you know, in 2020. That's, you know, utterly ridiculous to me. But so much of our conception of what the uni- what is good about the United States actually stems from this very activity. You know, in my book, I talk about how in the United States, we're taught that these actions that the United States military or, say, the CIA takes in other countries... Uh, like Venezuela or Nicaragua or Chile or Bolivia. The actions that it takes in those countries are, you know, taken under the guise that the United States is going into these countries to grant them the freedom that they're fighting for. When so often the actual truth of the matter is the United States is sponsoring anti, you know, decolonization uh, movements anti-socialist uh, or communist movements and then broadcasting those through the wider news as mass protests against the leftist governments and then they use that as the means to say that they're going into the country to instill democracy. First of all, that's not the truth of the matter and so we have to stop giving people the grounds to have discussion like it is. The fact of the matter is simple. The United States military exists for the sole purpose of extending the interests of the United States government into other countries and across the globe. That is the only purpose that the United States military exists and why it exists in such a massive state as it does. The other thing that I talk about in my book is now how that causes the need for liberation. How the United States involving itself in the affairs of the entire world completely destroys the self-determination and the independence of these nations that we're supposedly instilling. You know, we say that we are spreading democracy. We say we are spreading freedom. But it is democracy and freedom for the United States to act as it sees fit in these countries by completely, you know, we either send the military and just kill everybody or we somehow or another involve ourselves in their economy to an extent that they become dependent on us. You know, we even did this to the the indigenous people of the United States by taking their, you know, their children and putting them in boarding schools, completely stripping a lot of, you know, uh, already devastated tribes and nations of not only their workforce, but also their hunters, their warriors. Um, and this is past the time of really having 
warriors necessarily because at this point in time, a lot of nations had already been forced into some form of, uh, of or another of subjugation. But that right there is the United States enveloping itself in the affairs of another sovereign nation, making that sovereign nation dependent on the United States in one way or another so that it can have its, you know, its way in that country. Um, so I talk about that. And then I also talk about um, the history that has come, you know, during and of the 400 years of colonialization and imperialism that has happened not just in South America, but also in, you know, the the more broad Central and Latin America. It's also happened in Asia. It's happened in Africa. It's even happened in places in Europe, in Russia. This, you know, complete domination, this complete dominion of the United States through the use of its military. And I kind of connect that in the broader context for the need for a socialist revolution, or I should say that is the plan. Um, I'm working on connecting all the points because when I wrote it, I just kind of wrote it in like a feverish manner. You know, I just kind of typed out like a hundred and some pages of my thoughts and just kind of, like I said, just kind of got them out. And so I kind of am going through, I'm editing. I wanted, I added a chapter on history, uh, which wasn't in there before. And then, like I said, I'm going to connect it broader to the broader need for uh, an international socialist revolution. So if that's something you would be interested in, I'm hoping to have it completely edited by the end of the month. I have Thursday off and I'm still technically on quarantine order, even though I'm allowed to go between my job and my home, which don't even get me started on. Um, But I won't be able to go do Thanksgiving things. Uh, So I'll probably spend the day writing if I can. So look for that to be out, hopefully, in some form or another by the end of the year. Uh, If I can't get... I, You know, if I send it to a publisher, I would expect that I wouldn't be able to publish it by the end of this year. But if I can get it to a publisher, I would hope, you know, that that's the goal. I want it to be published. Like, I want to send my manual. You know what I mean? That would be really cool. But even if I can't do that, I will at least self-publish it by the end of the year uh, so that people can have that um, if they want it. I doubt anyone will. Um, Also, if you would be interested in reading the, you know, edited version and kind of giving me some notes to know, like, kind of what to go on, I don't really have uh, an editor or anything like that. I don't have anyone to truly bounce this idea off. So if you would be interested in that, DM me on one of my social medias and we'll talk. So now that we got that uh, done with, I want to talk about this topic of government, and especially government under capitalism. So, I would like to, you know, start by giving... My my hypothesis is very simple, and it's that people don't actually have distrust in government. People have distrust in the government that exists under capitalism, uh, especially in, in the more specific context in the United States is where I'm talking. So why is this? Why would it be 
that, you know, so many people would have distrust for their government. Well, not for nothing, but why don't you take a look at the United States government and tell me what you think would cause people to have some distrust, okay? So it's very obvious in this country to everyone. I don't care what you call yourself. It's very obvious to everyone in this country that this government is quite obviously, I I don't want to use the C word and say they're corrupt, but at the very least, this government has not done its job in the last 40 or so years. At the very least, this government has done absolutely nothing to provide, truly provide for the citizens of the United States. And this is because in the more, you know, historical context, during the 70s with Ronald Reagan, this idea of uh, financial conservatism, which is still plaguing the United States to this day, uh, it, it really cemented itself in the government. Uh, and so we see a lot of uh, shying away from the use of government to better people's situations because that's an overstep of government, supposedly. And even if it's not an overstep of the government, if you are someone who thinks that that would be a proper use of the government, but you don't think that, you know, the government should be spending so much money on it, first of all, how else do you expect that social programs are going to be done? You cannot in any way, shape, or form be socially uh, liberal and fiscally conservative because how are you going to implement the social programs that you want? Um, so firstly, it's, you know, it's antithetical. And secondly, it's, it's become very, you know, central to the, uh, the understanding of government in this country of this hatred for a deficit. You know what I mean? We don't want to spend money because we're going to have a deficit. And I don't have a, a great enough understanding of how that works in this country. But I can tell you this, that what we saw earlier in this year with the $1.1 trillion coronavirus relief bill that came out that saw $795 billion of that $1.1 trillion go directly into the military, some form or another, rather than to the people of this country. It's a coronavirus relief bill that relieved the military. Um, And so you have stuff like that that so easily can be passed. You know, we can give billions of dollars to these credit card companies. We can give billions of dollars to the banks. We can give billions of dollars to the military, to the private prisons, to the military contractors, to ICE. We can give millions of billions of dollars to ICE to operate uh, so that we don't have to set up government uh, institutions to do that. We can hire a private agency, McKinsey and Company, to become ICE. But when people need health care, when people are struck by a pandemic and are out of a job and need their bills paid, all of a sudden we're fiscally conservative. All of a sudden we don't want to cause a deficit. And I think it's very important to remember when the U.S. government is willing to, to take a hit, to worsen the deficit, to spend money, and when they're not. And really, you know, ask the question why that is. So this is a key principle to understand. This is a key uh, conception to have when thinking about the reasons why someone in today's day and age would have a distrust for the government. And more than just simply a distrust 
So many people dislike the government. So many people condemn the government and its actions, whether that's Republicans or Democrats. And yet, what is it that Republicans and Democrats alike have done in the Senate, have done in the House, have done in the Supreme Court, have done in local chapters of government, in state chapters of government? What have they done to improve the situation? It it is so easy for a politician or for a person such as myself to point the finger and say, this is wrong. The government is doing this wrong. But if we do not have a theory to say how to do it right, this is how we could do it right, then pointing out the wrongdoings is unnecessary even. What's the point? If not to replace it with something that will work. So this is also a key point to understand that we have this distrust of the government. And every, you know, every time you talk to anybody about politics, unless it's an election year, we talk about how corrupt these politicians are, how much they lie, how the government is not for us, how it's just all bullshit. But then every four years, somehow or another, it changes. And when we go to that ballot box... We take what those politicians and what those government officials said to influence us to who, you know, who we're going to vote for. We take what they say and we allow it to influence our vote. But every other three years, all, you know, the rest of the time when it's not election year, we say they're corrupt, that they lie and not to, you know, trust them. So this is, you know, a little bit of backwardsness in this country. So now more than this. More than distrusting the government. More than disliking the government. So many people in this country point out what's wrong with what is done by this government. In all levels. But yet, I have yet to see any person other than Bernie Sanders. And I'm not even a big fan of Bernie Sanders anymore. Surely I saw his utility at a time. I don't know if he's still useful. I haven't really been paying attention. But... Even someone as so moderate as Bernie Sanders is completely shut down, completely disregarded, and completely cut out of uh, the possibility of serving in government. And even, and this is a point that we should be understanding if we really want to see change, even if Bernie Sanders had become the president of the United States, what would he have done? What would he have been able to do himself? Almost nothing. And so when we have these representative government systems, which have no representation for the working class, which have no representation for the needs of the general people in this country, the 70% of people in this country who are living paycheck to paycheck, the 30% of these people who are out of a job, you know, The 80% of people in this country who cannot afford a $400 emergency expense. Where is the representation? Where are the laws being passed that are going to help these people? And this is a key point to understand. And so my final point in regards to, you know, why you distrust the government, why you dislike the government and why the government does not help you. We have to understand all these things in context. The government is not corrupt because people are bad. And people are not simply bad because people are naturally bad. We have to have more of a 
nuanced, I hate that word, but we have to have a more full understanding of the, the very, you know, government that we wish to condemn. Why would the government, why would the government of the United States have no interest in helping the people of the United States, the actual people of the United States, not the people in government of the United States, but the people of the United States? Why would the United States government have no interest in that? Well, in, in a capitalist mode of production, as anyone can acknowledge, the, the purpose of capitalism is to make a profit, to, to appropriate, sur, appropriate surplus value. That, quite ultimately, has consumed not only just the business side of the United States, but also the government of the United States. Not just simply through the use of lobbyists, but for, for the simple fact that so many politicians are politicians because businesses paid them to be. So, we have to understand that this is the ballpark that we are playing in. This is the system that values profit over humanity. And we saw that. We're seeing that right now during this pandemic where we all have only received one $1,200 check, one rent payment for so many people. And what else has been done for the ruling class? How many billionaires got tax cuts? How many politicians, how many government officials went on recess and collected a $3,600 check a week? How many people of the ruling class, of the 1%, have made off like bandits, as they so often do during this pandemic, while people literally are starving to death? While people are being evicted from their homes in the middle of a global health crisis. While people have died from a virus that so easily could have been handled if, again, this country's you know, economy, this country's society valued humanity, valued people's lives over profit. How much of this has to continue to happen before we get it through our heads that capitalism is and always has been the root cause of these symptomatic problems such as corrupt government, such as uh, ill-mannered humans, ill-natured humans. What is so necessary if we seek any true change is an understanding, is a context for these problems. Because if we cannot understand these problems more than just simply their existence, we have to understand these problems for why they exist, what you know they have created. What influences they, you know, have had since then? What systems and institutions have been influenced by these events? We have to have this context. And so my very last point um, is very simple. And it's that we have never seen, never seen other than the Soviet Union, which had so many failures. And, you know, obviously we can have conversations about that, but that's not the point of this discussion the only true socialist, you know, world power that we have seen has been the Soviet Union, which I sadly did not live during. And I don't really have a, you know, a, a nuanced history and understanding about. So I won't talk about it in, in any detail. But right now, right now in the world, there is no socialist world power that the people of the world broadly could look to to understand what a socialist 
government the size of, say, Britain would look like. We have no example to turn to. So, so often when I have conversations about the necessity for communism, the necessity for socialism, I get questions about, okay, well, if this problem arose during a socialist society, what would happen? Or how would socialism tackle the problem of racism? Or if a socialist government existed in the United States, what would it look like? My friends, we have to, first of all, We have to understand that if we did not actively live in a capitalist society, no one could understand what a capitalist society would look like. And so to expect me, to expect anyone to explain what a socialist society would look like, how a socialist society would solve certain problems, that's a ridiculous request. I have no idea. I have no idea. But in theory, in theory, we can say this is how socialism should address these problems. And so the most important thing to keep in mind, the most important thing to understand about socialism, if you don't have any broader context and broader understanding of them, is this. The important part of socialism and what socialism and communism give us, and specifically Marxism gives us, that capitalism, that liberalism, that conservatism, that republicanism, that the Democrats, that social democracy, that democratic socialism cannot give us is the use of the scientific method. So what I mean is simple. We should implement, and 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 I'm so passionate about this because I've recently read uh, Socialism, Utopian versus Scientific by Frederick Engels, which if you uh, read theory, if you get enjoyment out of it, it's a great book and you should read it. And he talks about the, the necessity to stray away from utopianism, as he calls it. And Marx and him talk about this in the Communist Manifesto in the chapter where they talk about socialist literature. You have to avoid utopianism. And what that means, simply put, is you have to employ the scientific method. We have to have a scientific approach. If you are to solve, say, the healthcare problems that face this country, well, firstly, you have to say, what caused these problems? What problems have come from the awfulness that has existed in this country in the, you know, uh, uh, healthcare industry. Uh, uh, What has that influenced? What has that led to? And then with all of that understanding, then you say, what is wrong? What needs to change? And then when you discover what needs to change, how can we change it? There is no perfect world. There is no perfect government. But the closest thing you can be to perfect is by looking at, again, the context which exists where you are governing. Say in New York. The context of New York has to be understood in order to create and facilitate structural and functional change in in New York. We have to have that understanding. And so what socialism and what communism in the form that I support them, what they offer us that all these other political theories cannot is the ability to take the reality that exists, put it into a formula, and come out with an answer. You know, Marxism gives us the ability, historical materialism, dialectical materialism, uh, give us the ability to look at the world through the materialist lens, which allows us to avoid, you know, 
utopianism. And it, avo- it helps us to avoid idealism, which causes utopianism. You know, rather than taking this broad concept, which we think will work in theory, and trying to just apply it to where we are in time and space, that will never work. We have to understand the context in which we are trying to create change. And we have to use that to influence our theory. We cannot just simply form a theory and then try to apply it to society. We have to form theory out of the reality that exists in our material uh, society, uh, our material conditions. And so my final point is this. The necessity for socialism is this. It is a necessity to meet the needs of the very people that exist today. What capitalism cannot do is meet the needs of the people. The best way to understand capitalism, if you have no understanding of it whatsoever, is this. It is a slave society. It is a society that requires wage labor. To support capitalism, we have to have widespread wage labor. That's why 50% of our economy in this country is the service industry. We have to have wage labor. We cannot have anything other than wage labor and have capitalism. So in a society that requires wage labor, i.e. is a slave system because these supposed opportunities we have are so incredibly narrowed down to simply wage labor, to simply available wage labor jobs at that. So this society that is a slave society that requires wage labor, that requires me to simply earn a living, cannot even earn me a living. It is a slave society that does not even give its slaves the ability to feed themselves. How many people in this country go a week without buying groceries? How many people in this country are uninsured? How many uh, people in this country do not go to school past, say, high school because they can't afford it? How many people in this country are forced to work jobs that otherwise they would never ever in a million years work? How many jobs exist that never in a million years would exist in any other system? How, men, how much of this is caused directly because of capitalism? The answer is all of it. And so as it happened during the bourgeois revolutions of the 18th and 19th century, where feudalism could no longer support the masses. It could no longer provide for the people the needs that they, you know, had. People under the feudal system were dying simply because they could not afford to live. We are seeing that today. Under capitalism, there are 23 million uninsured Americans to this day. There are 28 million Americans currently facing eviction. There is also $150 billion worth of food thrown out every single year while thousands of people starve, while thousands of people have to live on government assistance. For what? As if the food does not exist to be eaten, it simply does not want to go to them because they don't have enough fucking paper money in their pockets. And so my final point is this. What does socialism offer the working class, the people of this world? What does socialism and a socialist mode of production offer the general public that capitalism never could? And that is the ability to feed yourself. Under socialism, 
Things such as food. Things such as housing. As education. As jobs. These are no longer seen as private goods. They are seen as social goods. Which means that they exist solely to benefit the people where they exist. And so... People will get jobs because people need jobs and because people need jobs to exist so that they have places to shop. People will get houses because people need houses and houses are social goods. They exist to house people. What other purpose does a house have other than to house someone? So why do we have over 500,000 empty homes in this country with 1.2 million homeless people on the side of the road? Across this country. How is it that houses exist for any other purpose than to house those 1.2 million people? And so, socialism. What does it offer people? What does socialism do that capitalism doesn't? It feeds the people. And more so than that, it does not simply create a slave society wherein the slaves can afford to eat. It creates a society where there is no such thing as slavery. There is no such thing as the necessity to afford to eat because you are a human, you need to eat, and here is food. What other purpose are we growing food if not to have someone eat it? So what does socialism offer us? It offers us the ticket to freedom. It offers us the ticket to the dignity of life that every single human being on this country deserves. On on this planet, rather, excuse me. Socialism offers us as eloquently and as firmly as I can say this, I say it now. The needs of the people Of not only the United States, but I'm speaking specifically of the United States because that is where I live. The people of the United States and the people across the world cannot expect that anything will get better unless socialism is implemented. We know this to be true. And I am not simply saying when I talk about Marx, because I talk about Marx a lot. I talk about him in my book. I'm not simply saying that Marx was some magician or some psychic or, you know, the only person who got it right. But I I have read explicitly Marx. I've read a lot more Marx than I've read anything else. And Marx has got it right repeatedly. It has been shown that the money that exists, the profit, the surplus value, whatever you want to call it, the amount of money that exists that allows some people to be able to eat and others to not, That money is slowly but surely making its way into fewer and fewer pockets, into fewer and fewer bank accounts. And surely you and I, surely you and I in America are going to work. Some of us, a lot of us are making enough to survive. Some of us, a lot of us are making enough to survive somewhat comfortably. But none of us, none of us can ever conceptualize the amount of money that some people in this country make and the connection that needs to be made, the connection that we as the working class have to come to terms with is the connection that because people like Jeff Bezos or the Waltons or Bill Gates or whoever 
is able to amass billions of dollars. We are poorer for it. The existence of billionaires, the inequality that that creates, is the reason why people go hungry. Is the reason why people die in hospitals because they can't afford insurance. It's the reason why people die on the side of the street in the middle of winter because they can't afford a home. And it will only change. And it will only get better. Structurally. Not simply for a few people. And we can fight for reforms. And that's not a bad thing. But the only way that this will truly change for the better is with an erasure of the capitalist mode of production across the planet. And an implementation of scientific socialism. Otherwise, the people of this country can expect, and of this world can expect very soon, an even worse world, an even worse reality. That's not to talk about simply the climate crisis and catastrophe that is to come. But when Amazon owns all of the farms in the United States or wherever we import our food from, when Amazon owns all those farms and a loaf of bread is $20, how else are you going to get bread? And until we start reckoning with the fact that this change, this socialist implementation can only come through the process of us, you and me, the listener, myself recording this, and the general population, you know, getting their fucking hands dirty and making change, the sooner we're going to be able to see this change. That's my final point. If you're still listening to this, I really appreciate you. Thank you very much. I love you all. Uh, If you don't already, please go ahead and follow me on my social medias. I have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Annoying question, boy. I also have a blog, Annoying Question Boy, spelt just like that, no caps, no spaces, dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T or blogspot.com. Uh, and then obviously, if you're listening to my podcast, just know it's available in a wide array of different uh, streaming platforms. And I have a bunch of episodes you can go back and listening to if this wasn't your cup of tea. Uh, yeah. Again, be on the lookout for that book, hopefully soon. If that's something you're interested in, please let me know because I am feeling very proud but not getting any validation. So please, someone validate me. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope everybody's doing okay during these fucking awful times. I love you all. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely rest of your day. Bye. Oh, I got to do it on the phone, not on the car.